Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Welcome to Sunday evening service here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. If you turn your Bibles to the book of Hosea, and tonight, chapter 4, and a message that I've entitled, All Rise for the Judge. Interesting title in light of what the church has been faced to deal with over the last few days as the Supreme Court ruled and says that we need to continue this lockdown here for coronavirus for another a few weeks anyway, as long as the, the governors of our state continue to do what they're doing. But at the end of the day, at the end of the evening, as you lay your head on your pillow tonight, as I do the same, there's actually only one true judge, and that is the Lord. And the Lord judges all things absolutely Perfectly, He doesn't mess up. He, he has no capacity to be wrong. And to that end, the chief way that we understand what God wants from us and what God wants for us is his word. It is his revealed truth to us. And so ever, wherever the word of the Lord speaks in our lives, and beginning with the children of Israel and, you know, their first really written communication that we have recorded for us in our Bibles, you might remember they were given 10 commands. And those 10 commands were very simple. There were five that were Godward. You shall have no other gods before me. Basically, God was saying, look, I want to be first. And then God went on to say, look, I don't want you to steal from people. I don't want you committing adultery. I don't want you lying. You need to tell the truth. And so there were five commands that were given to the children of Israel that pointed their eyes to the Lord, from whence their help comes, from where the truth is founded, and then how that's applied towards people in the other five. And from there, the entirety of truth expands. And as far as we're concerned, it comes to us in in this book that we call the Bible. I don't know how many pages yours has in it. Uh, they range anywhere from, oh, say around 1,500 or so uh, to, to maybe uh, 1,000 if you have a slimline Bible with as few pages you can possibly get. But the word of the Lord is our chief way that we understand truth. It's not so much through personal revelation, though that happens occasionally, but that personal revelation will never, ever ever contradict the direct teaching of what God has already said or what he previously instructed all believers throughout all of the history of of man's sojourn here to understand and believe. So you're not going to find a new command that says thou shall commit adultery or a new command that says you should go steal or a new command that says don't worry about telling the truth. You're not going to find that. Because the revealed word of the Lord is his final word on his subject, which he wants us to understand. And so here in the fourth chapter, 
we have the judge rising from his bench, and he is now going to give us this incredible picture of how he's bringing this indictment before the people, and he's saying, look, here's the charges against you. These are the things I want you to know. And so as he does that, we'll pick up and read the entire chapter, but let's pray and we'll begin in verse 1 with a very plain statement. It says simply, hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight, for those watching and listening, for those that'll watch later and hear later, for those that'll tune into a podcast or uh, perhaps be encouraged through social media to, to watch this message. We ask that your Holy Spirit which fell upon the early church uh, in power on that first Pentecost. Lord, as we uh, honor that celebration today uh, of the empowering of the church to go out and accomplish our mission, to accomplish the tasks, the goals that you have for us. Would we fail not in one word, Lord, of what you've commanded? Would you encourage us as your church to hear your word and to be doers of it? In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. Now remember the main, uh, the central uh, application of this passage was to the children of Israel. But the truths contained in it are eternal truths. They came from an eternal God, and so they apply to us in a general sense. But to the children of Israel, these things were very, very, very specific. They were in sin. And in a similar way, when we have lived our lives apart from what God has said, we can expect to receive the same treatment. Because of God's character, uh, he cannot change. For thus says the Lord, I change not. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so whatever God has said that is truth in the past, because of who he is as the sovereign God and as he is absolutely without error in his character and in his doings, uh, you can expect that in the future, whether it's today or, or many years from now or when the Lord should return for his church, whatever he has said in the past will also be true in the future. And so for you of Israel, for the Lord brings charge against the inhabitants of the land, that would be the land of Canaan, Uh, We know it today as modern-day Israel, but it was the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God is saying, look, if you're in the land, if you're Israel, uh, that at that time was the northern kingdom, so the ten tribes in the north uh, that will be eventually taken by Assyria. He says, there is no truth. You, You don't speak the truth. You don't listen to the truth. You won't hear the truth. Or mercy, he couples those two things together. You see, you can hear the truth and be merciless with it. And so he couples, God does, speaking through Hosea, there's no truth or mercy. Or knowledge of God in the land. And this is another way of saying, you're you're not listening to what I'm saying. You're not hearing the word. He's already told them what the problem is. Look, I'm speaking to you. I'm sending you prophets. I've given you my written word by this time. We don't know to what extent uh, the word of the Lord was available to them, but they surely had the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. I understood what they were supposed to do. And very clearly in the books of Genesis, Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these things were spelled out that they were supposed to be and do. And furthermore, in in the book of Exodus, they had made a a commitment to the Lord. They'd made a vow to the Lord, a covenant to the Lord, that they would do absolutely everything that God told them to do. And we'll get to that in a little bit. And so God says, look, here's the indictment against you. I'm going to give you the rest of this indictment. I'm going to tell you what it is that's going wrong with your life, why, why you're in trouble. There's not any knowledge of God in the land. You've allowed me to become a byword. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, notice the general phrase, they break all restraint. They're no longer restrained. They're lawless. They just do whatever they want to do. With bloodshed upon bloodshed. And therefore, the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. And now let no man contend to rebuke one another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. And so Hosea now hears the word from the Lord. And the judge begins to speak. He says, look, this is the charges against you. These are the things. Your, your wife is estranged. She's gone out doing whatever she wants to do. And it's a picture, really, of God bringing all the nations into his courtroom. And, and this is not unfamiliar in all of Scripture. And in fact, Isaiah sees the same thing. Jeremiah does as well. Micah in chapter 6. And even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 basically hears the same thing. And David as the psalmist, as as he writes in Psalm 94, he says, rise up, judge of the earth, and pay back the proud what they deserve. Now, in a New Testament sense, this is so important for us to get, because ultimately, we're all going to reap what we have sown. We're, We're going to suffer the consequences of the things that we allow in our lives, the things where we rebel against God, the things where we don't do what he says. Now, Those consequences may be few, they may be many, they may be severe, they may be light. God chooses exactly how he wants to judge things and what he wants to do with that judgment. But as the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Galatia in chapter 6, there in verses 7 and 8, he says, don't deceive yourselves, do not be deceived. God will not ever any time be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you'll also reap. And so if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap the good things of the Lord. And so there's a direct consequence to our action, to our being doers of the word that comes when we hear what God has to say. Notice how this passage begins, this chapter begins. Hear the word of the Lord, but don't just leave it there. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to do it. It's one thing to even have mental understanding. It's another thing to believe it, put it in your heart, and say, that's the way I'm going to live my life. And that's where the children of Israel were having a difficult time. And that's the complaint that God now brings up. Now, I'm going to tell you that this is a catalog of sins that's listed here that's really like none other in the Old Testament. This is 800 years before the Apostle Paul will write Romans chapter 1. But it nonetheless gives us a picture that that God's not missing anything. He's not, you know, wow, those people are so crafty. I didn't see that coming. No, God fully understands. He knows why we're doing what we're doing. 
And to kind of clarify and to help intensify it, uh, there's a figure of speech here that I've shared with you before, a polysendenton, that is simply joining things together with a conjunction like and or or, and, and it adds them in essence one to another. It's not one by itself in a comma. It is, it is each of these things. It's like, and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're doing, it's kind of like when you talk to your children. It's like you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that and you just name all the things, but you're guilty of all of them. And so God is saying, look, you're guilty of all these things. And it's interesting to me that what we see there in verse 3 is God saying, okay, I'm telling you what the problem is. You're doing all these things. You're lying. There's no truth and you're not being merciful. You're not taking care of the poor. You're abusing the land. You're doing all these things. And then in verse 3, he says, and therefore. In other words, you deserve what's coming next. You, you see, that's where that Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 principle comes in. It's like, this is what you get for what you've done. And sometimes I wonder as we ponder the things that we face in our nation today, in our state today, in our city today, really in our world today, I, I wonder if we shouldn't just stop and say, Lord, is some of this because we've not been faithful to you? Is some of this because we have sinned against you? Is, is some of this a problem that we've created? Is this our own doing? You know, we're quick to blame the rest of the world as believers. We're quick, quick to say, the devil made me do it. Or, or maybe we'll get so close as to say, well, my flesh is weak. But the truth is, church, sometimes even the church engages in outright sin. It does the wrong thing when it knows to do the right thing. And because of that, basically God is saying, you guys caused this. This is on you. This is on your head. I warned you. I told you what I expected. And you decided you didn't want to do that. And because of that, the whole nation in that sense is judged. Now you might say, well, that, that, that's not fair. Now before you get too far carried away, it's not that God is going to hold personally responsible every person the same but what God is saying is that when you are part of a culture, when you're part of a country as we are, we have this blessed, incredible privilege that, that we have this beautiful republic that is a federalist republic that allows every person's vote to count and allows us to have a, a government that's by the people and for the people, supposedly. But if we don't engage in that, if we step back from it, if we are completely withdrawn, if we just say, this is what I believe, but we don't tell anybody else that's what we believe, if our voices, in other words, are silent, then we can, in fact, even though we have not actively participated in those sins ourselves, we end up suffering the consequences because we did not act. It's the sin of omission, not the sin of commission. And just like Gomer here doesn't take her marriage vows seriously, so the church can be guilty of not taking its vows to the Lord seriously. In other words, if we stop being doers of the word, we're just hearers. We know what it says, but we don't do it. Then we can get ourselves into trouble, even if we're not engaging actively in those things ourselves. We can end up in a place to where we have established the very things that now cause that sinful problem to exist, even as a country. One of the things that 
Pastor Bill and I intend to talk about on Thursday night for Ask the Pastor as we begin is the issues of race and racism. You know, people are so quick to blame certain component parts of our society, like it's this is all about Antifa, and they're going in and causing these things, and they ignore all the other contributing factors. And so it is not so simple, and we need to recognize that very often as we take responsibility for our own actions, we're going to find out maybe it was just inaction on our part. Maybe we stood by and did nothing. The very thing that the Apostle Paul, as he wrote in Romans chapter 1, there at the end of Romans chapter 1, he, he goes through and he dresses all these incredibly sinful things, of course. But what he ultimately does, he says, no, nah, it's not about that entirely. It's on those of you who know to do right and don't do it. You who approve of such things. And church, we can approve by silence. We can approve of things because we don't speak up. And I'm not talking about political things. I'm talking about things that should matter to every living, breathing human being. It's not taking a side whether it's you know, Republican or Democrat or donkey or elephant or any of those things. It's when truth has been spoken by the Lord, that's supposed to be the opinion of the church. And we should seek to actively engage in making sure that truth is lived out in our lives. Israel's going to pay a horrific price for allowing evil to go unchecked. And that's the story of this chapter. We love the Lord. It should be borne out in how we love our neighbors. Amen? Can we say amen to that? You see, if you love the Lord, you're supposed to love his creation. And most specifically, you're supposed to love your brothers. And because we're all in that brotherhood of mankind, in that sense, you don't have to love sin. You don't have to love everything that everybody does. But there has to be a genuine love for the rest of the world. That's actually what motivates us to preach the gospel. That's why we care if people come to know Christ personally. And in this case, we're going to see something that is kind of shocking to us. We're going to find out what happens when you just simply ignore it. When you say, I don't really care. I don't know that I want to know what's going on in my I'm I'm perfectly happy right here in my ignorance. I can guarantee you that in the northern kingdom, known as Israel, there were people who were not actively engaged in sinful behavior. But they knew people who were, and they were silent. They just stood by. They didn't say a thing. And so God says, look, I'm going to judge the whole nation. And in the greatest sense, as we'll see in in verse 6, to know God is to have an intimate relationship with him. And so we have to understand that this comes from knowledge. What God is saying is, look, I've told you who I am. I've told you what I expect. And now I expect you to do it. I want you to know me. You know, the longer you're married, the more you understand your spouse. Now, you may never, while we're on this earth, get to fully know your spouse and everything about her or him. But I can tell you in the 43 years that Connie and I have been married, I still learn new things. Why? 
because I'm still seeking to learn new things. I'm seeking to try and be a better husband, a better father to my children. They, they are taller and stronger than I am, but I'm still trying to, to be dad in the best way I possibly can. And in the very same way as God's kids, we should be attempting to be the very best from the day we meet Jesus to the day we go home. And so we should want to know the Lord more fully, more completely, with greater depth and clarity. And so we need to know his word. That's where we should be starting. And so here, basically, Hosea is pointing kind of just to the Ten Commandments. He's saying, look, I want you to do, just, let's just start with these things. No lying, no murdering, no stealing, no committing adultery. Basically, he goes after the manward portions, the, the five commands that are, that are us towards each other. You shouldn't do any of these things. And I want you to notice the result. The whole world suffered for it. Their world. The world as they knew it, Canaan. And basically, God was reminding them of what he told them back in the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy. Look, if you do these good things, then I'll bless you. If you do these bad things, then I'm going to curse you. There's a direct equation there where God is basically saying to us, it's like, look, this is on you. If you do good, I will bless you. If you don't, I'm going to let you know you're going the wrong direction. You're not going to get good things from me by doing bad things to me. I'm not going to bless you in your sin. I'm not going to cause your fields to be fruitful while you're pillaging the rest of the world. And so God is saying, look, I, I, I am going to judge the whole nation. You, you guys have a common responsibility in this as the body of Christ, we would say, but to them as the children of Israel, to do what I've asked you to do and be who I've asked you to be. And so to that end, the Lord now in verses 5 to 14 elucidates this complaint against them. Verse 5, and therefore you stumble in the day. You see, it's one thing to stumble at night because you can't see. But there is no excuse for stumbling during the daytime. You're just not paying attention. You're not watching where you're going. You aren't looking for the hazard. You're doing something silly. Therefore, you stumble in the day. There's the therefore. And again, it may seem trite and simple to you when you see that word therefore. Look and check and find out what it's there for. Why? Because of the sin. Because their minds had gotten off of God and onto the things of this world. They were doing the wrong thing instead of the right thing. And therefore, you can't even walk straight during the day. And the prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. So now it even goes to a deeper level. And this is troubling to me when I read this. It's one thing to have people in the pews. It's one thing to have the congregation, maybe some of whom do not have a deep relationship with the Lord yet, to see them stumbling. And they could stumble at any point in time. They're just young in the Lord. They don't know what God wants of them yet in totality. They haven't read through the word. They don't understand the things that God is saying to them yet completely. But those of us who are old, and especially those of us who teach the word of God, those of us that we would call pastors in that day priests, or the prophets, the prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. 
It's like when the prophet ought to be the bright light in the room, the prophet is stumbling with everybody else. The pastor, the teacher. The person who's teaching the word is just as messed up as the people that they're trying to teach the word to. And I will destroy your mother. Now, I want you to notice verse 6, pastors, you're listening, you're watching, and you're a pastor. Check this out. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And that word knowledge there is deep, intimate relationship. It is our job as the pastors of churches, as teachers, to bring people to a full, complete, deep understanding of who God is. And that comes through faithfully teaching his word. That's why I said what I said this morning. If I don't, if I can't, let's not say if I don't, but let's say I can't faithfully articulate God's word. And if I won't teach all of it, if I leave parts out to suit some agenda I have personally, if I have altered this in any way, the reason that admonition, that warning is at the end of the book of Revelation, cursed is he who adds to or subtracts from this book. Now, you can say that's just Revelation, or you can give it the broader application and say all Scripture. I prefer the latter of those two things. But even if it's just Revelation, Revelation simply repeats what's already been said throughout the rest of Scripture about man's rebelliousness and lack of attention to the word, lack of being loving, lack of they've fallen away from their first love. The church gets this round condemnation. It's like, you guys, I told you what to do and you're not doing it. And so the point is this. When we look at what's being said here, if we do not faithfully give people the word of God, then at best they'll be ill-equipped. But if we alter it to make it say something it doesn't say because we want it to say that, then we are literally leading them down a road of being cursed. We're encouraging them to go someplace where God is going to have to spank them to get their attention. My people are literally destroyed for lack of an intimate knowledge of who I am would be another way to translate that. Because you've rejected knowledge. That's one thing if you teach somebody the truth and they reject it. It's another thing to not teach them the truth in the first place. I I shall also reject you from being a priest for me. Like you wonder sometimes when this happens, you see a once thriving ministry and it just begins to take a nosedive. And and it's not because they don't have a beautiful building. It's not because there isn't money in the bank. It's not because of any of those things. It's because the pastor stopped teaching the word and God's saying, look, I want men in the pulpit who will faithfully teach the word, who tell my people the truth, all of it. They may not want to hear it. They may not like what it says, but teach them the truth. You don't want them destroyed because they don't know what to do. You'll be rejected because you've forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. You want to know why we have some of the problems we have in our country right now? For those of you listening, maybe you're critiquing what I'm saying. Part of the problem that we have in this country is because we have kicked God out. We want to know why our children don't want to know who God is because we haven't shown them who God is. 
We haven't told him the truth. We haven't rested and trusted in him. We haven't walked by faith. The church has been guilty. We yanked prayer out of schools. We take God out of the workplace. We make it illegal to carry your Bible, but you make it legal to carry porn, and you wonder why the country's in a mess. He says, look, I'll forget your children. The more they increased, again, helps have an understanding of the original language here. The richer they got, the better off they were doing, the more prosperous they were, any of those would work. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. God doesn't want to share us. He is a jealous God. And he doesn't give us stuff so we can forget him. He gives us stuff so we can use it for his glory. Sometimes it's just because he's good and he wants to bless. But in a general sense, God gives us blessings so we can use them for his glory. Don't miss this truth. Make sure you're understanding that. It's so important. They eat up the sin of my people. It's like he's saying, man, you guys got your priorities wrong. You're so worried about getting all the sinning in that you can do, trying to justify it some way by coming up with some false interpretation of what God has previously said, that you just eat it up. You just go after it. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. What a condemnation that is of both the church itself and the people who lead it. You should be able to turn to your pastor. You should be able to turn to the staff of this church. You should be able to turn to those in leadership and find a level of holiness, a level of life and living that at least gives you something to shoot at. You should not find the pastors in the toilet. You shouldn't find them messing around in the muck and in the mire. Now, this is not to talk about anyone else's problems or sin. This is simply to say, could it be that, you know, when we think that pastors need to own Ferraris or pay themselves a million and a half dollars a year, or or that it becomes more important about wearing a $1,500 suit or a 10-carat diamond ring, Could it be maybe the priorities are messed up? Is that a sign that perhaps we haven't learned what it means to be temperate or moderate in all things? I don't see Jesus getting a diamond-studded grill, just saying. I'm not thinking he's doing that. I think if they'd had, you know, some really nice Italian wool suit, Jesus isn't buying And so again, it's not to pick on anyone in thing in particular. It's like to say you should see something different in the people leading the church than you do the people are trying to lead. Jesus said it this way. He said, you are blind guides. You can't see straight to lead other people. You're doing the same things they're doing. That was the problem then. And he's going to reward them, it says, in the end of verse 9, for their deeds. For they shall eat and not have enough. They'll commit harlotry, but increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Notice how 
the, the focus is on actually being a doer. Not just knowing it, but doing it. It's hearing it, then doing it. And harlotry and wine and new wine enslave the heart. Always has, always will. Always has, always will. These particular sins still captivate the human heart today. Now, for us today, it's beer and bikinis, but it was the same thing. It wasn't any different. Different expression of it, but the internal problem was the same. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols. Their staff informs them. The spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they've played the harlot against their God. In other words, God's being pretty explicit here. He's saying, look, you're, you're going after prostitutes. You're going the wrong way. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense under the hills, under the oaks and the poplars and the terebinths because their shade is good. It's like, as long as we're benefiting from it. This is an Old Testament, if it feels good, do it thing. It's like, well, I enjoyed it. If it feels good to me, it's good. If I like it, it's good. It's situational ethics. It's justifying sin. It's saying, look, I know, God can't tell me what to do. My body's my own. I can do whatever I want. You, you see, we keep hearing things like this coming, unfortunately, from the church, from pastors. It's like, well, you know, we used to feel that way. How tragic is it when people who were once used of the Lord renounce their faith, and then go exactly the opposite direction. Well, you know, I was wrong, and I want to apologize for everyone that I ever stood for the truth. That's effectively what men like Josh Harris have said. I kissed dating goodbye, and now I kissed the Lord goodbye is where he's at. That is tragic. How many people listen to his words, and now they're going, he doesn't even claim to know the Lord anymore. He's in a very, very dangerous place, and he is trifling with fire. I encourage you, Josh, you need to turn around and come back to the Lord. You're in trouble. You may not believe at this moment, but the God that you served still loves you, but he will not tolerate what you're doing. And he's not beyond taking you out. And that's not a threat for me. That's what he's done in the past. Ask Achan. They've played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burn incense. They're doing the exact same thing that the pagan people who were in the land before they arrived, that they had to fight for that land because God gave it to them. They're doing that. They are doing exactly what the Apostle Paul said. They are dogs that return to their vomit. They're going backwards, not forwards. And what follows in verse 14 is kind of frightening to me. 
because it shows such a hard heart. God's word declares to us, the book of Hebrews, that God chastens those whom he loves. Now, I'm not trying to make a direct equivalence here that God is saying he doesn't necessarily love them. But notice what it says, verse, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry. And I think part of that is how can he punish the daughters when the parents are doing it? How can he punish the kids when they've been shown wrong since birth? How can he spank the children for the sins of the father and the mother? Nor when your brides, when they commit adultery, how can God punish people who don't know the truth when the truth that the world promotes and the truth that is in the church looks strangely similar? That's why when I, was, I have shared with you that the divorce rate in the church is a scant bit different than it is in the world. And again, I'm not trying to be too specific here, but I am trying to say to you, the church should be different. There should be a marked difference in the church. We should be marked by Christ. We should keep our vows. We should live our lives in accordance to his principles and practices. For the men themselves go apart with harlots. He's saying, look, you guys are just going the wrong way. It's not just the women, it's not just the men, it's not just the kids. The whole country was steeped in a mess and offer sacrifices to a ritual harlot. In other words, you go into church and that's where you find your hookups. And there are people who do not understand and will be trampled. In other words, the truth that they don't know is the reason they're going to be run over. But God's not going to let us off the hook. He's especially not going to let pastors off the hook. He's basically saying, look, this, is, this has done the same thing throughout history. You can't go the wrong way and expect to not pay the price for it. If the lifestyle that we're supposed to live isn't good enough for the pastors, it'll never be good enough for those sitting in the pews or the chairs. If it isn't good enough for the pastor, how can it be good enough for the congregation? And we're in this together. And the nation's preachers, when the nation's pastors are evil, when they turn a blind eye to sin, when they fail to call the world into account to what the word truly says, when they become opinion makers, philosophers, and politicians, when instead of preaching the truth of God's word, they become celebrities. There's a price to pay. Those pace-setting people are unprincipled. And when the pastors are unprincipled, what do you expect the people are going to do? They will never go any higher than they're led. If you ask the Russian people, their priests became Stalin, Lenin, Marx. They kicked God out, and they got Stalin, Lenin, and Marx. To the Germans, who were largely a Christian nation, 
predominantly a Christian nation begin to go the wrong way. They end up with Hitler and Goebbels and Mengele. When the Iranians, formerly Persians, many of them Christians, much like in Lebanon, formerly Phoenicians, many of them Christians, when they abandon God, they get a new priest. And that new priest can be an Ayatollah, like Khomeini. You can get an Islamic revolution instead. You can have militant fanaticism. And maybe God is warning us in our time in this country, be careful about kicking me out. Be careful about not paying attention to what you believe. Be careful with the truth and mercy. Because we can end up with our substitute here as well. And my fear right now is our substitute, instead of us worshiping the Lord, we're going to start worshiping political agendas. We're going to start worshiping at the altar of civil things instead of holy things. We need to be careful. We need to worship the Lord alone and him only do we serve. And the more we know his word, the more we know what he wants us to do and how we're supposed to live. And here's the truth of it. A nation's behavior is just the cumulative effect of individual behavior. That's all it is. So the more of us actually live out the word, the more of us who love the Lord, the more of us who know the Lord and do something with that knowledge, collectively, our culture gets transformed. But if we start turning to other things, our culture is going to suffer. And we need to be really careful because I believe we're on the edge of a cliff. And it wouldn't take much to push us over. In Hosea's time, it didn't take very long for them to start worshiping the golden calf. It didn't take them long to to turn to Ahab and Jezebel. It didn't take them long to, to begin to go after the beer and the bikini, so to speak. It didn't take them long at all. Because the promise was, you'll be fulfilled in these things. And we could throw in all kinds of modern analogy here to say, you know, well, that's just the American way of life and materialism, all those things. Some of that's probably true. But the fact of the matter is anything that's a substitute for your relationship with the Lord can ultimately become dangerous. It doesn't matter how good it is. It could be something that actually God intended. It's good. It's how you use it. That's why scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's very specific. It's saying, look, it's a false god. A greedy person has a false god. And so all of a sudden you're worshiping at the, the temple of greed. And then comes the temple of avarice and violence. And then lying and cheating. Ultimately leading to despair. 
I want you to see something here, and it actually is very beautiful. God is still, in, still calling Israel his people. He hasn't kicked them out. They've kicked him out. He's saying, these are still my people. I still love them. I just want them to change. And so in the midst of saying that, he's saying, look, you need to be aware of these idols that could come into your life. These idolatrous things, these wooden poles, these things that you go and pray to. Look, let me just be honest here. You're going to get more out of praying to your kitchen sink than you are to some of the false gods that we actually worship in this country. You see, we don't have slabs of stone. We don't have pieces of wood. We don't have an Ashtaroth pole or a little statue of Molech. But we have a lot of other things that we worship. Certainly power. Many people worship in the political arena. People worship all kinds of false gods. And anything that is God other than God is a false god. It's an idol. And we could pick on Hindus or animists or... Yeah, we, we, we could go after Native American religious tradition of you know, worshiping ancestors or whatever you want to go after. You could even point a finger at perhaps our Roman Catholic friends who worship statues of Mary or a picture of the Pope or something on their dashboard that thinks it's going to protect them. There's one God, and we're supposed to worship and serve him. We're not supposed to offer our worship to anything else, anyone else. And so in this case, these people are having their lives negatively impacted by some filthy-minded priest in this context. Some guy that is going to church not to preach the word, going to church because the chicks are hot. How sad is that? I've talked to men that they, just being honest, yeah, I went to church because, you know, you guys got hot chicks there. That should bother us. That shouldn't be saying, yeah, well, you know, that's really awesome. No, it's not. It's despicable. It's disgusting. Not because we have ladies in our congregation who are physically attractive, but because someone would come here for any other reason than Jesus. Because someone would want to come here because of something other than the Lord himself. That's how masses get led into sin. And basically he's saying, well, you know, don't blame the people. They're just following the pastor. As goes spiritual leadership, so goes the church. That's why this time has been so horribly hard for me personally. There are times when I feel the weight of that. And I take it gladly. I don't want you to think the wrong thing. God's called me to this. But it is scary knowing someday I'm going to stand before a holy, completely righteous, unwavering, demanding God. Jeff, what did you do with my people? How did you lead them? Which way did they go because you led them that way? That's a strong responsibility. And for you, the same applies to you in your home, you in your marriage, you in your workplace. In this case, 
the further they got away from the Lord, the more idols they had, the more shrines they had. By the time Jeroboam comes on the scene, especially Jeroboam the first, they had more man-made religion than they had Yahweh. People had more idols than they had the true and the living God. And he made it easy. He just said, look, well, you know, it's good for the Assyrians, good for us. And even those that tried to reform, like Jehu, there are these men that, God, man, this is wrong. We got to stop doing this. Their job was so hard that it eventually killed them. They got taken away captive because the Lord was true. If you don't stop this, I'm going to punish you. I think it might be the very death of a nation. If you want to look at it that way, when the church loses its salt, when it stops becoming salt and light. And so the Lord issues them a caution here at the end. And it's pretty simple to see some warnings. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. And so he, he shows us the, the intent here. Here's the 10 northern tribes. Here's Judah, Benjamin in the south. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go to beth Evan, nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives, for Israel is stubborn. It's like a stubborn calf. The Lord will not let them forage like a lamb in, in open country. There's a euphemism there in verse 17, and Ephraim is having sex with idols. Leave them alone. Yeah, you don't want to see that. You don't want to do that. Their drink is rebellion. Their drink is rebellion against God. They commit harlotry continually. The rulers dearly love dishonor, and the wind is wrapped up in its wings. And they should be ashamed because of their sacrifice. In other words, you're so messed up, you don't even know how to worship God anymore. You're so messed up that you're continuing to do these things that you're not supposed to do. You're so messed up that you don't even recognize that what you're doing isn't acceptable even in public, much less in the church. It's basically saying you talk about being unequally yoked here. Talk about having your way with an idol. Don't be yoked, unbelievers. That's what Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 6. You see, Jose understood farm animals, beasts of the field. He knew what it was like to put a yoke on one of them, have them balk at it. They weren't tame. And they didn't want to go where they were being led. And the only thing that takes an animal from an undomesticated animal to a domesticated animal, and I'm not talking about abuse, so I have two dogs that I treat nearly like humans, so get off my case. What he's saying is, until you've broken a donkey or until you've broken a burrow and you've broken a horse or you've broken a lamb or a sheep, they kind of do what they want. And you have to repeatedly enforce what it is you want them to do so that they'll know which way to go and how to act. 
But here, Israel was so rebellious that they wouldn't take the training. They wouldn't listen to the Lord. And I fear sometimes that our country's going this direction. It's like pastors just caving in on the word because it's just too hard. If I tell them the truth, they won't come back to church. If you don't tell them the truth, they might go to hell. If you don't teach them to walk in the ways of the Lord, they may be in for a far worse fate than not showing up at church. And finally, he makes this illusion and we'll close. What do you want? Do you want Bethel? Do you want the house of God? Or do you want Beth-Evan, the house of evil? There's a little wordplay going on here. Be careful who you follow. Don't meddle in the things of the world. Don't meddle in the things of Israel because she's so far gone that she's heading the wrong way. Ephraim, Israel, is joined to idols. Leave them alone. Don't go to that church. Don't follow that pastor. Don't listen to that stuff any longer. You have to pick and choose where you're going to worship. You can pick and choose the house of evil if you want, or you can pick and choose the house of God. It's up to you. It's your call. But Israel was acting like a stubborn cow, not a submissive lamb. And basically God's saying, look, I'm going to stir up a whirlwind of judgment against you. The nation is such a mess that it's so stained by idolatry. There is no Holy Spirit in filling. There, there was no Pentecost moment in the church. It wasn't voiced in, in their tones of yearning love. It wasn't that they were boiling mad about sin. They weren't crying out to the Lord. They were doing their own thing. Like, oh, you know, kind of, you know, I'll worship God on Sunday. But the rest of the time, I want to be able to live however I want to live. That's not living for the Lord. That's living for you and for this world. It's also how you would clearly define a really bad day if you're a believer. How like Hosea's land is our land, our country. They drink these things continually. They live as God never intended the children of God to live. Not only not under the old covenant, and certainly not under grace. Israel had sown to the wind, and she's about to reap the whirlwind. Now all Hosea kind of sees is what's coming. And I would say to you, praise God for his grace. I'm leaning on it. I'm counting on it. But I also expect God to act justly. And he's not going to put up with this stuff for too terribly long. Now, praise God, mercy is available and grace is available. I don't want you to forget that part. But God's not a fan of rebellion. And so if you've been wandering down a couple of paths you shouldn't be on, here's the good news for you. Repent, turn back to the Lord. He is as the father was on the road to the prodigal son, waiting with open arms to bring you back. 
But if you keep going, you can count on him doing anything and everything necessary to get you to tire completely of that journey. He'll take everything up from underneath you. He'll destroy everything you trust in or allow it to be so so that you'll see the direction you need to go and go that way. I pray for our country that we'll turn before it's too late. I pray for our country that we won't allow these incredibly divisive things that face us right now to destroy the hope that we have in heaven and God's grace because he is still gracious and he does still love us just like he says to Israel, my people, he still loves us. But there's a price for rebellion and I don't want to pay it and I don't want you to pay it. So let's turn to the Lord and allow him to heal our land, heal us, work in our lives in such a way that we understand the goodness of his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your chastening. Lord, we thank you that you allow things into the lives of your church, just as you did national Israel, just as you will do for the Jewish people in the future. Things that they don't want, we don't want for them, and we don't want for ourselves, Lord. But so great is your love that you do chasten those whom you love. And so, Lord, where these things have come upon us, Lord, the rioting that's happening right now, Lord, protect those that are protesting peacefully. Deal with those who are creating havoc and crime. Protect the police officers and those that are responding, the first responders. Lord, watch over our nation's leaders, our city government here in Los Angeles, our governor. Lord, please give them wisdom. They may not know you, but we do. And so we cry out to you. We turn to you. We inquire of your holy temple. And we ask you to heal us, Lord. Cause us to walk in your ways. Forsake those things that bind. To do what you've asked. To be doers of your word and not hearers. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask for your hand of mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.